I'm June Reith and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time we're picking up part two of our discussion of neither vertical nor horizontal. If you didn't get the first part of this series, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back one and starting from there. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show. Shall we get on to chapter three, Revolution in Crisis? This is, I, found, I found this quite, a, quite an interesting chapter. Um, the author will go through, I mean, yeah, the, the concept of revolution is currently in crisis um, in that nobody seems to believe it anymore. Um, but to explain that crisis, we're going to go through the history of the concept of revolution itself. Um, yeah, this is super interesting. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a digression, but it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, the crisis for the author seems to amount to like the abandonment of three things, right? Like the, um, the abandonment of a teleological concept of history, the abandonment of a, um, what's the term he uses? Transitive relation between social, social conditions and political subjectivity. Uh, it's between, I think it's between, um, uh, sort of, what would you call them? Like, um, like objective conditions or whatever. No, it's it's not even that. It's like the it's like the the social category and the political consciousness, right? So it's the proletariat. It's not about the conditions that surround the proletariat. Is that the proletariat is inherently the messianic revolutionary subject because of what the proletariat is, according to my definition of the proletariat, right? Nice. That's that's the transitive relation there. Yeah, it's not. It, it, it's like the transitivity is that it is the actor upon the world in a very particular and reliable way. Right. The the deterministic sort of the the notion that that, that position in the world and and that that a social category will deterministically give rise to a political subjectivity that will carry out the revolution. Um, and the third thing that's abandoned is a any hope for a clean break. Um, but to get there, we have to go through the bit, the kind of the concept of revolution itself. Um, and I guess like going through a lot of stuff here fairly quickly, um, in antiquity, you sort of have like a circular, you know, or cyclical concept of time and history. Um, in the middle ages, you had more of the, the Christian eschatological concept of time and history where things are pretty stable today, but there's going to be a very severe break pretty soon. And what's on the other side of the break? fuck who knows you know um crazy shit yeah and so essentially you get in the secular realm the idea of circularity right of of revolutions in a very literal sense that oh you know the wheel of the wheel of fate goes around right the wheel of fortune goes around and so you have the establishment of a dynasty the dynasty prospers then it falls apart and then you have a new dynasty and so it's just there's nothing new under the sun, but you do have sort of oscillations, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, ebbs and crests, right, of, of history. But you just it's, it's just going to follow the same pattern forever. That's entirely the, the worldview. But then contra- in a contradictory sense, you have the linear Christian understanding of time where everything um, is towards the second coming of Christ, right? And, and judgment day. Um, but the thing is that 
because of the way that these temporalities are sort of experienced, they didn't really come into very harsh conflict with each other. No, right, because your day-to-day experience is just like, in, in it, regardless of what temporality you're under there, like your, your, your day-to-day experience is that tomorrow is probably going to be the same as today as the same as yesterday. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, what do they say? Um, so right here, uh, these two temporal modes were at once the framework through which people organized and interpreted their ordinary experience of time and something sustained and reinforced by that experience itself. Uh, to borrow Reinhardt Koselleck's terms, the horizon of expectation of the medieval world never promised anything exceeding the space of experience of present and past generations. Change, though it of course still happened, took place so slowly that nobody could ever anticipate any major upheavals or surprises. Cyclical and eschatological temporality were thus ultimately compatible to the extent that they had different domains of application, the worldly and otherworldly, and shared the same attitude towards the future. Regardless of whether it brought the looming end times or only repetition, what was to come bore no novelty or deviation from the already known. Right? Like, we know Judgment Day's coming. You know, we, we know what that implies, uh, therefore, um, it remains a stability even as we are moving progressively in time towards it. We just never know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, all that changes then with modernity, with capitalism, with the Reformation, the conquest of the Americas, scientific revolution, all the crazy shit starts happening. And suddenly tomorrow looks pretty fucking different in unpredictable ways. And this gives you the sort of revolutionary temporality uh, of sudden changes in political regime. Um, progress. This is where the concept of progress comes in. Yes. So we have the future was no longer contained in the past. It could no longer be foretold by previous knowledge. From then on, it would be the bearer not only of the new but of a newness potentially beyond anything that the present could reasonably anticipate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, it's you get into this kind of like non-reversible time, right? Like it's it's a kind of open future. Yes, Sub- circularity is subordinated to linearity. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and in a sort of in a strange way, it sort of. Um, brings the the end of days back down to earth and sort of there's going to be this there's going to be a, a lot of these hard breaks on earth that are equivalent to judgment day right um yeah it's it's like um it's like when we talk about revolutions in the modern sense it's almost like if you have say like a um a music box with a wheel with pegs on it and that has like a, uh, you know, a, 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 a melody on it. Right. So there's a, there's some kind of like meaningful progression through time that's happening on this box. And so every time there's a revolution, it's like you crank that one tick over. Right. It's something new. It's a revolution, but it's sort of like you're feeding new. It's like a generative a, a, a generative sequencer or something, right? Like you're feeding new stuff into the end of that cylinder every single time. And so a, a revolution isn't the old sense of it where it's just like, oh yeah, we like we came full circle. Like we did the, you know, rise of the dynasty, fall of the dynasty, new dynasty. That's the circle, 
right? In that sense, revolution is very straightforward. But the way we use it now has very little sort of connection to the idea of circularity. It's more the idea of the world, like the, the world's clock turned, right? It's the mechanism turned um, and something new happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And like... Um... The, the 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 concept of progress here in, ends up with a kind of sort of mixed um, valence where it's simultaneously a kind of like it's an ongoing process that's like semi-deterministic that you're all swept up in but it also means that history is now like a project of deliberate action that you you can turn the crank deliberately you can speed up the crank deliberately but also you're swept up by the crank, you know, like it's, it's, it's a weird mix of determinism and kind of um, voluntarism. Yeah. It says, uh, uh, draws attention to the fact that as social and political differences were condensed into a binary opposition against the ancien regime, a parallel movement of lexical singularization and simplification took place. The infinite plurality of historical events was fused into a single history, freedom, capital F, took the place of freedoms, justice, that of rights of ser- and servitudes, progress, that of progressions, like les progrès, or the, the plural. And uh, from the diversity of revolutions, the revolution emerged. So the, the rev that we talk about. Um, singular and plural at the same time, the revolution thus named at once the kind of rupture with the past of which the French Revolution was the paradigmatic case and the broader world historical process that encompassed all such moments. In this way, the fate of particular events in the present or the future could be tied immediately to the fate of humankind as a whole. The revolution was at stake in, and therefore also a source of legitimation for, every revolutionary act. Um... So that's that's sort of the the broadest strokes uh, portrayal of what modern time is and what re- the rev means, right? Like in terms of you know how uh, like Trotskyists Trotskyists can talk about the world historical mission of the proletariat, right? Like it is a world historical mission because you can conceive of the world in this sort of historical terms uh and 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 uh and you know every action of the proletariat towards liberation is an action towards the rev um yeah um the uh the author brings in some kind of nuances here with like um it, it kind of might sound like there's a there's a kind of ongoing and endless progression of, of these political revolutions, but like for the 18th century revolutionaries and the Enlightenment people, that kind of wasn't really the case, right? Like it was supposed to be one, you know, big period of turmoil and revolutionary change, and then the political system would stabilize and settle down into a new stable orbit. But that revolution and like progress would continue in the fields of commerce and technology, and science, right? Like that, you'd have a eventual stabilization of of politics. Like um, it wasn't really conceptualized as an ongoing, uh, continuous sequence of of revolution of political revolutions. And this is this is where you get liberalism, right? Is is the idea that there was one significant political revolution that overturned the ancien regime. And following that, you will have these sorts of um, 
you know, technical changes, economic changes, all towards the better asymptotically, right? Like you, you, you eternally uh, approach perfection uh, across time, uh, but never reach it um, under the same political order. Right. And that, that, that's the, the vision of history that you get in liberalism, um, especially like, you know, if you look at, say, like the quote unquote, like uh, old liberals, like the Austrian school. Right. Like th they, they are very obsessed with this idea that there was there was one correct, naturally, divinely ordained revolution that was the liberal revolution. And everything after that has been you know, uh, a, a sort of crime against the natural order and a crime against God, right? It, it, that, that, that it's all deviation from the proper political order that should exist in which progress can proceed infinitely towards perfection. Yeah. Um, and then in contrast with that, you have the, the idea of social revolution emerging as like um, that revolution being unfinished, actually. There needs to be a further kind of economic and um and social reorganization um and this is where kind of the 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 current that gives us the socialists and the marxists kind of comes in um yeah it's the idea of the 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 social revolution which is that um social inequality uh sorry uh social oppression more properly speaking is um and is the unresolved business of the revolutionary process and there has to be a social revolution that follows or coincides with, depending on your school of leftism, uh, the, the, the political one, right? And so that's, that's where you get the split in 1848 between the liberals who want only the political revolution and the socialists who want the social and political revolution. Yeah. Um, then uh, there's, I mean, there's a bit more detail here, but then... Um there's kind of like, in some ways, they're not that dissimilar in that even the social revolutionaries kind of believe that there would be there would be a settling down after that second revolution, and that progress would still go through, you know, technology, commerce, whatever. Yeah, uh, it's uh, especially speaking about um, that quote from Marx, uh, the government of persons is replaced by the administration of things and the direction of the processes of production. So in in communism, uh, we have the end of, uh, you know, significant political history, but we have the beginning of, um, you know, real history. I guess you could say that the, the, the beginning of, uh, a world of freedom as opposed to one of oppression. Um, yeah. Um, so now that we've set up the concept of revolution and the concept of progress, we can get into the couple of sections on, um, the elements that were lost that make it seem so much less plausible today uh, makes makes these concepts uh, in crisis. Um, the first of these uh, is the section from necessity to con contingency, which basically covers the kind of loss of faith in the irreversible flow of human progress. Um, yeah, and and specifically, it's interested in the rise of thermodynamics as a physical paradigm to replace the Newtonian billiard ball model of uh, physics, right? That, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to think if you, if you view the world in Newtonian terms, how you could think in very sort of 
deterministic terms about change, right? Because it's just, oh, you, you hit the billiard ball and the billiard ball goes, you know, it's boom, you know, that's it. But uh, the, you get this sort of supreme irony that the sort of most celebrated machine, the most celebrated technical accomplishment of the bourgeoisie, the the steam engine is simultaneously the thing that brings to our attention thermodynamics and the realization that um, the dream of infinite progress, you get hit with the ball and then your progressive billiard ball goes on to infinity is uh, actually um, impossible. Yeah, there's there's an irreversible loss and decay that happens with every interaction. <laughs> um. Yes. Uh, yeah. Every every they put it well in it later in the book is that like every instance of organization occurs as the result of the disorganization of its environment, right? You and 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 that leads uh, inexorably towards greater and greater entropy, and sort of you know the heat death of the universe, right? Is the 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 the, the like the end uh, state. Um, that is pro projected as a result of this realization of sort of like, you know, running a steam engine and looking at like, OK, we're, we're putting in this amount of energy. We're uh, getting this amount of work out of the engine. And then there's a waste that's being bled off as heat and it's getting spread to the atmosphere around it. And that's not something that we can use. It's not we can never perfectly recapture that heat. And so then, oh, what are the implications for that if we think about that for the whole universe? Right. And then you get second law of thermodynamics and then this this heat death of the universe idea that is very much opposed to the modern concept of progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like in that um, with that realization, like the. There's like a cultural absorption of thermodynamics throughout the 20th century and like a, a kind of pessimistic turn. Um, and that, but then by the time you get to like the fall of the Soviet Union and like the triumph of neoliberalism, the, the historical inevitability of progress is just, is just fucking clown shoes at that point. You know, it's like, you, you gotta be crazy if you think that's true, you know? Yeah. I mean, at that point, the only people who believed that were neolibs right? Like the Fukuyama types, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, ironically. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But then uh, I don't think you could live in 2023 as a liberal and seriously believe that, right? Like the world has not gone according to that script. Um, um, but I mean, the so I mean, a lot of this is pinned on the sort of uh, Marxist camp, but like he points out that even even in that camp, there was like internal sort of um, debate over like you know determinism like the kind of inevitable uh, triumph of the, the the proletariat and such um, and you know a general shift over time towards thinking of things in terms of contingency well yeah maybe right like you know it's, there's there's all these forces in the world and they might work out this way or that way but you know one way or the other this is lost right this um this 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 ability to think in terms of inevitabilities and deterministic uh, outcomes yeah, so you essentially have like uh, Bernstein's uh, break with Orthodox Marxism, um, the idea of uh, revisionist Marxism that he comes up with, right? Um, and uh, so he says, uh, uh, 
as early as the 1890s, Bernstein uh, observed that some of Marx's key predictions had not come to pass. Uh, he argued that a theory aspiring to the status of science could not legitimately sustain in light of the available evidence that capitalistic collapse and revolution were inevitable and imminent. The elements that Bernstein decried as unscientific in Marxism were no less than a pillar of historical materialism, that is, the dialectic, um, and one of the bases for its scientific pretensions, determinism. He regarded both as external, a prioristic simplifications of empirical complexity that could not but result in arbitrary constructions and improbable deductions. If an effect which results from the operation of diverse forces can only be counted on with certainty if all the forces are exactly known and are given their full weight, a truly scientific outlook must recognize that so-called laws of economic development are in reality only tendencies subject to the action of countervailing forces. They may be the most important, but they are not the only forces to determine the course of history. This rejection of the unilateral determination of history and superstructure by the economic base would, of course, go on to be one of the prominent features of so-called Western Marxism. Um, and uh, what stands out in Bernstein's critique, however, is how much he is still operating within modern historicity. His anti-determinism flounders against the tension between denying the necessity of collapse and affirming the necessity of progress. Belief in the possibility of a gradual, peaceful transition to socialism ultimately hardens into faith as immune to empirical falsification as the theory of catastrophe he criticized. The direction of the process is unmistakable, quote uh, from Bernstein there, even if the general course of development does not rule out periodic setbacks and temporary reactionary convulsions. In the end, what Bernstein does when he abandons Marxist teleology is to fall back on liberal teleology. Emancipation results from the infinite perfectibility of state and economy within the framework set by the bourgeois revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. No wonder, then, that he should proclaim socialism as, quote, the legitimate heir of liberalism. So that's that's sort of the the first break you get in in Marxism is the Bernsteinian turn towards like social liberalism um, and 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 sock dem gradualism. Right. And there's a couple of other nails that get stuck in the coffin, um, like statistical mechanics, um, the uh, natural selection, you know, just just it, the evidence keeps piling up for contingency and like non-determinism. And then. There's also the anthrop anthropological kind of critiques, like really calling into question this kind of like very Eurocentric notion of history and progress. Um, and it all just kind of adds up to, yeah, this being kind of a dead end, really, um, which, yeah, um, isn't isn't recoverable. Yeah, uh, we we get uh, we get uh, Badieu saying um, in 1982, history does not exist. Um, Badieu being the, uh, the, the, the sort of famous, uh, French Maoist theorists. Um, uh, uh, and he says, uh, Badieu thus discarded two tenets of Marxism in one fell swoop history understood as a totality that can be grasped by reason and the idea of totality itself. 
to say that any collection of historical facts has no meaning outside of the symbolic operation that organizes it in this or that way, but Dieu would later make clear was a way to combat the confusion between the symbolic and the real that had allowed Marxists to anticipate a real fusion between the idea of communism and a historical truth. Um, a future moment of completion that could justify any excess or retreat here and now. To abandon the idea of history, whose full arc we could know and master, was therefore to immunize political thought and practice against the dangers of aspiring to the omniscient perspective of a, quote, tribunal of history. Um, and then we sort of get into the qualifications, right, which is that, well, even if we can't affirm the inevitability of revolution, we can't say that the revolution won't happen because that would be just as unscientific, right? Um, uh, but uh, the to assume the the contingency of history and the limits of our capacity to predict the future is certainly the more consistent option in the light of both contemporary science and the experiences of the last two centuries. What is more, the present threat of climate change suggests the possibility that even if world revolution were inevitable, humankind might simply run out of time before its hour arrives. Right. So that's that's like a really um, important one. Right. Is that like you could think uh, I don't I don't quite follow Nunes in saying that we um, should abandon teleology entirely, because I think that's kind of impossible to uh, think without viewing things progressing towards ends. Right. Uh, even if that's in a, like a probabilistic sense. Right. Like, you know, this this thing about like. Uh, you know, but you're saying that uh, uh, historical facts have no meaning outside of symbolic organization that organizes in this or that way. Like, even if you're thinking probabilistically, you know, they're still card counting in poker. They're still, you know, the, anybody who has played like any game involving uh, probabilities, like a roguelike or whatever, like you understand that probability is sort of weakly teletic, right? Like it, it tends towards things and you can, you can make uh, reasoning based off of that. Uh, but even if you assume that that, that uh, sort of tendency towards world revolution exists and, and communism exists, if it's only a tendency and there aren't sufficient number, there aren't a sufficient number of iterations for it to play out in because everything is uh, halted by climate change, um, then it's not something you can really bet on uh, 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 happening in any strong teleological sense because we just don't have time for it to happen. Yeah. And hence the necessity of organizing to speed up that process um, and to get the goods. Um, yeah. The second thing that's lost is... Um, the transitivity, right? The basically that yeah, the notion that there's a deterministic relation between um, social structure and revolutionary subjectivity, right? So like, you know, Marx kind of goes through these steps of saying that the proletariat, you know, may do the revolution because of its you know universal universality in its position, you know, in its position in society, and that it can do the revolution because of ten tendencies within capitalism, and then it will do the revolution because of developing class consciousness. Um, this kind of seemingly inevitable progression is the thing that we don't really believe anymore. It seems right. Yeah, it's like the the deduction. All uh, yeah, sorry. Um, 
uh, it, it's it's there's all kinds of issues with 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 that deduction. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, in the book, it's sort of highlighted that, like, um, there are the so-called new social movements, right, that that uh, that that diversified the interests of the left and sort of pluralized it in a way that made um, the centrality of the proletariat after the sort of 73 catastrophe uh, of, of, of the left falling apart, um, uh, less and less strong, right? Like the, the, the proletariat is still central. Um, especially if you look at like the alter globalization movement and the importance of unions there, or if you look at like any actual, like, um, social change that gets done these days. Uh, but it's not central in the sense that it's the transitive subject that must bring about the revolution, right? Um, it, it, it has a sort of privileged uh, organizational and strategic position, but it doesn't it doesn't have any kind of deterministic um, uh, world historical mission uh, that we could see being fulfilled uh, today. Yeah, right. Like it's it's related to the loss of the belief in determinism, right? Like that when one comes into the question, the other does. Um, and and this decentering of the proletariat specifically as the or the industrial proletariat as the specific you know subject that's going to get this done. Um, it just all becomes a lot harder to believe that there is this kind of inevitable connection between the two. Um, and instead, you know, in the end, like, it seems more that, like, political subject subjectivity has to be composed and organized. It's not something that just emerges, necessarily. Yeah, and this is a point where I really sort of take issue with Nunes, because um, we, we've talked about this recently on the Understanding Class uh, reading group. Um, but basically... He, He's kind of following that like uh, Laclau and Mouffe line uh, that, uh, you know, these things are just sort of like ra radically indeterminate outside the realm of the political. There's no objective basis for anything. Yeah, I found that fucking weird, right? Because like, they're saying it's, it's like social Legos, right? Like you just assemble them in whatever fucking way you want and you get whatever result you were looking for, right? Like it seems pretty fucking weird. <laughs> it is. It's it's sort of like pure Leninism where it everything is just like everything is symbolic operation and political uh, political will. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that that makes sense if you are like linguistic brained, right? Like if you're, if you're part of that sort of uh late 20th century linguistic turn where everyone's like, language is everything. Language is everything. Language is everything. Everything is language. You can't have anything outside of language. It's like, well, if that's okay, if that's true, then I guess it's, it's true. You could just have these like arbitrarily uh, <laughs> Lego together uh, pieces. Right. But nah, like, if you look at, you know, the sort of um, sociological research that you see in understanding class um, or that we discuss there, like, no, there there is actually quite an obvious and, and very strong um, 
strongly established in terms of its statistical significance, uh, objective relationship between uh, the um, the the objective uh, social and economic position of the proletariat and its uh, political consciousness. The thing is, even though that exists, it's not determinate in the way that a logical deduction would suggest. Right. It is. Yeah, it, 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 it to throw away a connection between objective conditions and political uh, realities would be completely unwarranted and anti-materialistic. Right. Yeah, um, I, I found these these couple of paragraphs to be deeply fucking weird because, like, the, the the statement that you know it must be composed and organized, I think that is true, but it's true for reasons that are different from what the author seems to think that it's true for. And it's one of these things where I'm actually surprised he doesn't pick the middle ground here. You know? Um, yes. Uh, yeah. It's it's really like you know taking that very strongly. Uh, Leclau and Mouffe uh, voluntarist position um, when it's it's really not warranted and like how can you honestly say like in an age where like what is it I just saw the other day um, the average I think it's the average cost of rent um, in Vancouver requires in Vancouver City requires that you would make uh, at least a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, and you have um, vulnerable people, uh, majority of people that are making only 30,000. Right. And so they're living in tenements. They're, they're double stacking in apartments. They're living in unsanitary conditions, all of these kinds of things. And you think that has no connection to political consciousness? Like, give me a fucking break. Like, sure. It's sure. It is something that has to be symbolically articulated and organized, but it doesn't mean that it's purely arbitrary and subjective. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, weird, weird little section. Um, but I mean, we, we can take what we want from it, and I think we're right in that. Um, uh, the next thing that is lost was... Um, well, the way it's phrased is that the thing that's lost is um, belief in a clean break, um, but the, the section title is uh, From Hylomorphism to Complexity. Um, yeah, and, and importantly, this hylomorphism is different from the hylomorphism that we talked about with Pickering. It's not the same thing. Uh, these are these are two different words. <laughs> They're using two different uh, Greek prefix Greek uh, prefixes. Um, not uh, yeah, not the same thing. Very, very weird. Um, so hylomorphism here is imagining that the world is made up of inert matter that is formed by external force. Um, and in this context, it's kind of the belief that human humanity is essentially just a uh, clay and can be molded by political will, uh, can be engineered by the Leninist elite, basically. Um, that belief is lost and we you know, we get a much more complex sort of, um, or, you know, a lot of the, those projects, like those um, Leninist projects, just fucking run aground on the complexity of, of real life and and and, uh, and the world. And we, we appreciate that complexity later, you know. Well, and it's something that goes beyond just Leninism, right? Like, it is a... Mm -hmm. It's modernity, right? Yeah, it's a particular modern tabula rasa 
perspective on humanity um, that you sort of see peak in the like mid 20th century with the um, dominance of uh, like linguistics um, and the dominance of, you know, that sort of median idea of anthropology and uh, human nature as something that is purely determined by social context, which itself is susceptible to um, engineering. Yeah. You can also see a peak in like the um, cataclysmic political projects that attempted to reshape the human clay by force you know, as well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And, and, and those were all sort of of a piece in a, in a kind of like um, generally progressively minded uh, uh, orientation, uh, but with, um, you know, really catastrophic results, you know, the exception sort of being like the Khmer Rouge, right? Like, you know, we're going to do um, ultra agrarianism uh, and we're just going to like use violence and social engineering to make an agrarian utopia, right? Um, which is, is kind of an out outlier in terms of uh, the tendency of socialism from the 19th century into the 20th. Yeah, and I mean, th throughout the sweep of modernity, it's it's just it's the style at the time, right? Like it's it's just the onion on the belt. It's um, just this the general belief in like um, the reshaping the world by will, you know, um, as as deliberate projects, um, which seems to just get darker and darker as it goes on. <laughs> and uh... yeah, there's there's a section in here where um, uh, the author sort of does some apologetics for Lenin. Um, uh, essentially saying that, uh, you know, well, you know, under Lenin, you had like the NEP and the, the, the Bolsheviks were sort of reacting to circumstances and, and, you know, um, uh, like you have Bukharin who's, who takes this evolutionary path of growing into socialism, uh, through sort of peaceful market competition between socialist economies and private economies and on the ideological and cultural fronts. And then on the other hand, you have the, 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 the sort of extreme voluntarism of Stalin, right? Um, but it's like, yeah, but like Lenin... <laughs> he wasn't short on voluntarism, you know? Like Lenin, yeah, Lenin sort of like, he went back and forth on these questions, but his decision to sort of, you know, just send it on the revolution, like just, just seize power, we'll just figure it out, right? That sort of set a precedent. And then you have like Zinoviev's party reforms towards like the ban on factions and that kind of thing. Right. Like it's, it's all sort of de like militating towards um, or, or tending towards Stalin in the sense that like he acknowledges there's different tendencies within the Bolsheviks at that time. And that is true, but the party form tends towards extreme unity and 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 uh subordination right and and that given the fact that like the revolution is established through a purely sort of political act um it it really strongly pushed towards the idea of you know the absolute domination of politics and the quote unquote you know suppression of the value form under stalin um in a way that like you know i don't think you can really sort of I don't think you can really sort of like 
let off the older Bolsheviks on that point um, in the in the way that the author tries to do here, uh, where where there's there's sort of a soft Leninism to the whole book and 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 a kind of slanted presentation of events, I would say. Um, that, that I don't really uh, uh, I don't really truck with there, um, but uh, you know it, it it is absolutely true that this model of Bolshevism hits its peak with Stalin, and every sort of quote unquote anti revisionist tendency that like pushes hard into voluntarism does use Stalin as their model, right? Uh, like you know to to. Like, we're going to fight back against the revisionism of Khrushchev, who's kind of more in that sort of NEP mode. Um, and so we're going to do hyper Bolshevism and, you know, everything will be about political will. Um, yeah. And like in the end, I guess by this point, it's just so much harder to believe in any of that kind of shit, really, um, that the 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 capacity to manipulate the human material by sheer will and to have a clean break that where we just we just remodel fucking everything. Um, no, it's it's kind of impossible to believe at this point like um Well, yeah. And like, you know, he makes a good point is like, well, OK, the Soviet experience was bad, but the fact that the Bolsheviks, you know, achieved this enormous economic development in their time uh, was something to say, perhaps in favor of the USSR. But then when the USSR falls apart and, the, it, and it just collapses into absolute economic dysfunction, that even takes away that argument in favor of communism, right, of, of party communism, of Leninism and Bolshevism. So so like, you know, you really if you are a a Leninist or a Bolshevik these days, the only thing you can really point to in terms of like that sort of narrative of economic progress is China. Right. But then it's like, well, but aren't they just kind of capitalists? Right. So even that is not a really great um, indicator of the success of this model of thinking. No, certainly. Um, yeah, let me. The, the last kind of point from this section then is that, like, especially with the growing interdependence of capitalist globalization, it it makes this even less tenable. As like, you know, um, you know, these going up against these complex webs of entanglements is going to require a different kind of strategy. As um, you know, I mean, Syriza discovered this. You know, just like saying, ah, we're going to unilaterally change things uh, but getting squashed by all kinds of international powers and interests yeah it's, yeah yeah even even a modest revolution as they say right it's, it's it wasn't like it was radicalized by the base um and the the leadership was pushing as hard as possible in the opposite direction for the most part um but you know even that sort of revolutionary moment that Syriza represented just gets absolutely crushed. Um, and then and then you have something like Brexit, right? Like it's like, you know, it's not a progressive political revolution, <laughs> but it was a significant democratic break with the existing order of things and clearly is not working out well um, because of this entanglement with uh multinational and uh, transnational institutions that basically uh, not even maliciously, but just just through that sort of logic of um, negative feedback 
militate against um, national revolutionary action, right? Just just by their very existence and trying to maintain what they are, they are trying to suppress national revolution. Yeah. The world is a complex place. You run into all kinds of forces and weird things going on out there. Um, Next section, then, is after the revolution. Like, what the fuck do we do after all this? Um, And... Yeah, I mean, basically, like, we kind of need more credible concepts of revolution that lean instead on, like, you know, tendencies instead of determinism, um, composition and organization of political subjectivity, and, you know, takes complexity seriously. Um, The kind of problem here, though, is that all of these point away from the certainties that previous revolutionaries enjoyed, right? Like, they had a kind of natural confidence in believing that it was all deterministic. It's it's a bit harder for us to be so happy with ourselves (laughs) at this point, you know? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like that saying that, you know, Marxism is the only uh, school of revolutionary thought that was ever uh, composed by a PhD, um, that, that, that there, there is this, this moment where the sort of paradigm of scientific and, um, scholarly thought coincides with something providential, um, and, and, and teleological, right? And, and so you can get a Marx, um, it, I mean, it, the, the sort of, the argument is, is a little bit, um, it's a little bit narrow because it might be true of a PhD, but it's certainly not true of a scholar, right? Like you get other scholars who become like revolutionary leaders, like in the, the, the Taiping rebellion in China or something like this. But, but, um, uh, you know, the point stands that there's a sort of particular social theoretical configuration at the time that Marx writes that, allows him to be on the side of scholarly scientific thought and sort of like strongly deterministic eschatology of like a future glorious age coming uh, through deterministic terms. Um, uh, and, And again, it's not to say that's all of his thinking. That's the only thing he said, but clearly this was a part of his thought that was efficacious, right? It, 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 it had a real significance in the, uh, popularity and, um, you know, consequences of Marxism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I guess the back part of this chapter then is that like once, now that we've got the understanding of the crisis itself, um, he turns his eye to the responses to this, this crisis in the concept of revolution and identifies two variables. Um, one being the scope and scale of revolution and the other being the role of organized collective agency and observes that, Whichever way you turn these dials, it seems very hard to max out both of them at the same time, whereas, you know, the previous revolutionary waves had both of them dialed up to the top. So you get some thinkers, and I don't think we need to go into the particulars, but you get some people who max out the scope of revolution, like revolution could be global, but there's very little role for a collective agency, like organized agency in it, or, you know, they have, like higher role for collective agency, but it has, it has to be on a much smaller scale, um, and so on. It seems, it seems hard to get both of those dials up, up at the same time. Yeah, there's, there's this uh, statement here. Uh, Even if we accept the absolute equality or a perfect social order and possible goals, Badieu and Rancière's uh, emphasis on an all-or-nothing heterogeneity between, quote, real politics and police or the state 
makes it hard to distinguish between more and less equality, better or worse orders. The circumscribed nature of, quote, real politics offers some compensation for the impossibility of revolution, but it also impairs the capacity to differentiate radical and cosmetic, useful and counterproductive reforms. The risk is that it sets a standard of politics that is radical to the exact extent that it is in, in, inoperative. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's so radical, it doesn't exist, right? It's like, oh, great, okay. And then you have like, you know, um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, right? He talks about how uh, their idea of the revolution, the real revolution, is the line of flight that deterritorializes de existing strata and is thus opposed to whatever new territory is eventually produced, just as becoming is opposed to history. In what may be the most thorough critique of the humanist hylomorphic conception of revolution, these movements are opened up to non-human agencies, technical innovations, unexpected encounters of all kinds. They carry individuals with them more than any collective subject that, uh, can deliberate or organize them. But then the problem is, it might happen, but how could it ever be made because it is a pure line of flight? It's a pure singularity. It's something that has no relationship to any continuous historical political reality. Yeah. Um, well, like, even when, even when Deleuze and Guattari are kind of like, you know, in, in doing the embedded imminence sort of stuff, it's, it's these like tidal forces that are pulling you along. Like, like these, um, it's, it, there's no room for organized, deliberative collective agency in that. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's forces that act on you, and you get swept up in it. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, there's this like a causal sort of aspect of it, where it's just like there's sudden breaks and stuff. But that's you know, the the the, the collective agency dial is at zero. But like the, the scope of their possible revolution is galactic. <laughs> you know, it's fucking colossal. Yes, it's everything. You know, we're riding the snake, man, riding the snake. Uh, <laughs> uh. And then we have um, the uh, uh, Zapatistas in Chiapas and the, the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria in Rojava. Uh, sorry, is it's Rojava, right? Rojava. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and so the, the point that uh, Nunes makes here is the comprehensiveness of their aspiration to change social relations within a given territory is offset by a, a limited, extensive ambition. Their locally circumscribed character. This has certainly contributed to both their internal achievements and outside appeal. So it's like they have no ambition to go beyond their territory um, and they haven't really uh, become uh, potestas in the way that people would 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 dislike. Or if there is evidence of that, they're so far away from the um, capitalist core that people can look at it at a distance and 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 approve of it, right? And and so there's a certain degree of it being obscured uh, from our understanding, and a certain degree of it being small enough that it doesn't make us uncomfortable, um, and and therefore is somewhat acceptable to the left. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, th those are all very tidy examples of this problem where we. We can't, we can't seem to get both of those dials up at the same time. Um, and, and then we sort of get into like, well, if we're talking about the revolution, like, aren't we talking about something more significant than any of this shit? 
like, you know, like, doesn't the revolution mean something more than that? Isn't it uh, like, you know, it says uh, what was at stake was never just a change of regime, an uprising, a revolt, a radical reform or a locally and temporally dis uh, restricted experience but a thorough lasting transformation of social relations that ultimately extended to the whole of humankind. Although uprisings, revolts, reforms, and so forth could certainly be parts of that transformation, the very possibility of distinguishing between them and revolution lay in the non-local systemic dimension of the latter. Revolution was not a partial adjustment, a temporary modification, or a change occurring in one place while everything else remained the same. Through, uh, through however protracted a process, it was the wholesale replacement of a system of social relations with another. So it's, it's like, you know, that's actually the stakes of what we're talking about here. If we're talking about revolution, it's not the fucking iPhone getting launched, right? It's it's not it's not um, it's not uh, well, we were just talking about this the other day, like or uh, in the in the green room. It's not the SNP taking power in Scotland. Right. Like that's not it, it, it's a kind of, you know, regime change It's kind of maybe a, a, a revolution in the, the 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 British political order. But it's it's not a revolution in the sense that anyone meant it. Um in the 20th century, the 19th century, in terms of like, okay, a fundamental change, a structural change in a very broad swath of human life. Um, yeah. And like, similarly, like revolution is not you and your buddies taking over a squat or something, you know, like, or doing fucking mutual, doing tiny mutual aid efforts like that. It's, yeah, it's chicken feed. Um, so he's, he's arguing for reclamation of scope and ambition and and organizing towards that ambition because as like has been pointed out numerous times any effective response to the climate crisis will have to be of that scope and of that intensity that is meant by the revolution it, it can't be you know oh uh we got one group of libs in instead of the other group of libs in right like that is not a sufficient degree of change in order to address the crisis mm -hmm. yeah um let's get on to chapter four critique of self-organization um i remember this being quite a complex chapter um but we're kind of getting on for time so let's see what we can do to condense this um basically like there's this problematic opposition between organization and self-organization or like organization versus spontaneity um a lot of it hinges on the left kind of misappropriating elements from scientific discourse and like you know discourse around complexity and you know stuff taken from biology and stuff where as part of this trauma response against organization um, we've kind of really leaned into the, the notion of, like, dis just distributed headless kind of processes that can take care of themselves. It's, it's basically saying, like, uh, abdicate, it's abdicating responsibility for organization that, like, hey, maybe the revolution will take care of itself, right? Because they, they kind of look at, look at biology or look at nature and, and say, if, if there are these natural processes that kind of proceed without a central plan or proceed without an apparent agent guiding them, then maybe the revolution is the same. Maybe it can just 
sort itself out without us having to actually push for it. Um, and that, that's all under critique here. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, and it's 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 like, well, I can't discount that it might happen, but you know, many things might happen. It doesn't mean they're likely to. <laughs> right. And so organization is still necessary, right? Like, this is the thing that, like, it, it basically, like, I mean, the way it kind of sets it out in the start is that this idea of self-organization is quite problematic in that it kind of hinges on either um, a kind of... Uh, like projecting these like value judgments right like or naturalizing political ideas by just claiming that they're you know self-emergent in the natural world or um you know doing this very problematic choice between autonomy and strong determinism right or um turning turning value judgments into statements of fact because like the, the whole thing about self-organization stuff in left politics is that it's it's very value judgmenty it's very like oh no no organization is bad um you know uh self-organization and and uh, spontaneity they're 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 um free range you know they're organic they're um they're natural you know you don't you don't want any of those fucking you know gmo organization stuff you know getting into your food supply you want you want the 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 the, the, the whole grain stuff you know um, yeah and so the, the the first thing that he points out is that um he says uh Evidently, then, isolating a system from its environment is essential to identifying it as self-organizing. So basically, for it to truly be self-organizing, it would have to be isolated from external causes, right? Yeah, it has to be a totality. Um, the ir irony is that the impossibility of doing so in absolute terms was what led early thinkers of self-organization to warn that, in a certain sense, such systems do not exist at all. There are no such things as self-organizing systems, was how the physicist and cybernetician Heinz von Forster chose to open the interdisciplinary symposium on self-organizing systems that took place in 59 in Chicago, the first academic event of its kind. So the first thing it opens with is, these things do not exist, actually. <laughs> yeah. At a, a follow-up event a few years later, the psychiatrist and cybernetician Ashby equally concluded that since no system can correctly be said to be self-organizing, and since the use of the phrase self-organizing tends to perpetuate a fundamentally confused and inconsistent way of looking at the subject, the phrase is probably better allowed to die out. So, you know, uh, to put it, to get sort of short into their objections, Forster was basically saying, well, if you take thermodynamics into account, a system can only be organizing to the extent that it is disorganizing its context, its environment, right? Because the entropy's got to go somewhere. Uh, uh, the, the organization can only come from a consuming energy from the environment whose entropy in turn will increase. Um, and, and so it's not truly self-organizing in the sense of a contained system becoming more organized. Um, and then Ashby uh, was saying that um, if we understand a self-organizing system as one that is capable of changing its internal state according to information received from the environment, by definition, such a system is only a subsystem of that environment and not self-organizing in a literal sense. Its self-organization is a modulation of and thus dependent on the hetero-organization that outside causes impose on it. 
Um, and then he's saying basically they have like a similar premise here. Uh, if to be wholly self-organizing entails having no input whatsoever from the environment, only a total system with nothing outside it could fit the description. Speaking in absolute terms, there can be only one self-organizing system, the universe in its entirety. That was, in fact, what Spinoza had deduced back in the 17th century, and so on and so on. And in fact, we know that the, the universe as a totality is not self-organizing because it's tending towards maximal entropy. It's self-disorganizing, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's going from the Big Bang to maximum entropy. Um, that's the quote-unquote organizing that it is doing. Um, and organization is something that we see locally. It's not something we see at the level of totality. So the, the problem that you get with the hypothetical of um, fully isolated closed systems is also true of the universe. And so, but like, if we, if we then see um, systems in terms of like uh, being recursively nested and being like horizontally related to like sibling systems or like systems in their environment, then we can't really posit total self-organization. Like there's, there's mutual influence, there's reciprocal kind of feedback and adjustment that nothing is ever really inside itself entirely. Um, yeah, exactly. And then there's also, he brings up the problem of... Uh, sort of um, this zone of indiscernibility between systems, where if you have system A and system B, but you have nodes within both systems that are related independently to each other, are, are, are they a part of system A and system B discreetly, or are they system C, which is overlapping with system A and system B. So this idea of you know policing the boundaries of organizations uh, and maintaining self-organization entirely uh, doesn't even work at sort of this like formal level of analysis of uh, of networks. Yeah. And there's some important points here of like, um, like why is it that we want to draw this inside-outside distinction? And it's kind of down to value judgment judgments, right? That like, like the the notion of organization from outside or even receiving information from outside just has such negative connotations on on the the left, right? Like, um, and that we kind of make this judgment that you know, the inside is more legitimate than the outside, It's and, and so on, but, like, it just kind of collides with reality of, like, how systems actually operate. So, like, mutual adjustment and kind of reciprocal adaptation is the rule. Like, it, there, there is no clean inside-outside break that you can make. Yes, um, and then we get a section that is talking sort of about left thought and self-organization, um, and it, it's essentially saying that the only way you can believe in um, self-organization in the sense that it is typically meant um, in political discourse is uh, through believing in this kind of transitivity of a political subjects, right? Where it's, it's sort of the uncaused causer that just naturally operates that way. But then, like I was thinking about it, I'm like, even that doesn't hold up because like if you look at, say, the proletariat, right, the proletariat is constituted socially, right? Like the proletariat is organized as the proletariat by outside social forces. It, it, it comes into being in historical time through social effects. It doesn't magically appear in reality 
um, without any context to it. Um, so even, you know, if you believe in that sort of strong historical mission of the proletariat, you have to concede that the proletariat is contextually determined to a certain degree, right? Yeah, um, right. Um, and to pin it down a little bit, like, I mean, the, the particular thing that he's going on about here is the, the like, the, the, the desires, the beliefs, and then the actions of agents. Like, where do they come from spontaneously? Are they... And, and kind of going into this in, interior-exterior kind of distinction, and it, it all kind of just falls apart, right? Like, you can't make any case for the desires and beliefs and subsequent actions of the agent being entirely from within themselves, nor can you make the case for it being entirely received from social context. Like, it's, it's, it is a complex mix of the two. Yes, and um, he, uh, there's also the following section is sort of a critique of anarchism, um, and it's just pointing out that, um, you know, anarchism as an idea of sort of like anti-organization um, only makes sense if you believe in um, a very strong notion of human nature. So, like, basically, if you remove the constraints on people, they will naturally form the perfect society. Um, or, what or, what's he call it? A atheist providentialism. Atheist providentialism. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because it's 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 like, yeah, you 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 take away the the oppression of the state, and then people will spontaneously form a, a better society, right? Like a a, a much better society, um, because their nature drives them towards cooperation, and it's only this, like, you know, um, uh, sort of a demiurge that is fucking with things, right? Uh, of the state, um, uh, or you have to believe in the transitivity idea, right? Like, there's a there's a sort of a a historical social necessity that will drive them regardless of any preparation, organizing structure, any of that kind of thing. They'll just automatically do it uh, because of that. And then sort of, you know, uh, at the end talks about um, uh, Bakunin actually kind of uh, arguing in favor of organization um, as a means to uh, sort of help midwife the perfect anarchist revolution into into existence, uh, because he, he can't see in any practical terms how the abstract theoretical uh, 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 commitments of anarchism can come to pass, right? Like, how could you get an organized society out of just simply, like, suddenly taking the cops away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like, and he's taking a big swing at the, the idealism of the anarchists when compared to the Marxists, right? Like in that kind of historical moment that like they're, they were really concerned with the ideal scenario for a revolution, like how it should, how it should play out. Whereas the Marxists were much more concerned with actually getting the job done. Um, and then... Yeah, the, 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 the dictatorship of the proletariat is a practical doctrine because... In terms of ends, as you know, we've sort of been at pains to discuss many times on this podcast and, and on the Emancipation Network, is is like Marx and Bakunin were in agreement. They wanted the same free society. It's that uh, Bakunin was saying, you know, in his sort of non-strategic texts, 
that um, or his critique of Marx that uh, uh, the way the revolution should ideally happen is the only way we should practically think of it happening. While Marx was saying, no, we can use the dictatorship of the proletariat to get there. We can be more centralized and then we can decentralize afterwards. Um, maybe both of them were wrong, but the point is that Marx was thinking practically while Bakunin was thinking ideally. Um, and, and, and in ideal terms, they both had the same ends in mind. Yeah, when it's laid out here back to back, you can really see how the anarchists got the reputation for being beautiful souls or whatever, or beautiful losers. They're like kind of just kind of very twee and quaint kind of just faith in humanity just spontaneously doing the right thing at the right time all at once somehow, you know, it's pretty fucking weird. Yeah, which, you know, later sort of came over to Marxism in the form of like, like you know, the heart and Negri autonomism, right? The multitude. But um, uh, I think that uh, um, it's also like really not reflective of the sort of like anarcho-syndicalist branch of anarchism, right? Which obviously is in favor of setting up some kind of dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Like that's kind of the whole point of um, the, 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 the syndicates coming together to run things is to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, they're, they're not really in disagreement with Marx on that. They just might disagree about some particulars. So um, it, it's, it's uh, when it comes to the question of practical politics as opposed to these like isolated ideals, um, the anarchists tend to be in favor of organizing of some kind, even if they don't uh, agree with Marxists on everything uh, uh, about the particulars. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, all of this really tilts in the direction of like, not leaving things to chance, right? Like that, like in, in the face of all this, like you really shouldn't be leaving things to just spontaneity. Like why bother rolling the infinite sided dice? Well, and like he points out here a really important point, which is that, you know, Lenin was critical of this sort of um, idea, right? But practically speaking, when it came to Lenin making the revolution and what came afterwards, that's exactly what he did, right? In terms of, like, it'll all just work out. That idea, like, it'll all just work out is exactly the Leninist gamble, right? Like, there was no plan for economic planning. There was no economic alternative to capitalism that they had in mind. All they had was a political program for seizing power for a workers' dictatorship. But... You know, they they um, they basically blew off the Menshevik uh, objections to why the political revolution would not work in Russia and went ahead and did it anyway on the gamble that things would just work out because of providentialism. Um, and they really didn't work out. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the political success of of being organized politically it doesn't really guarantee anything um, because uh, you can't rely on providentialist arguments for why 
the post-revolution should be any better than the pre-revolution, right? It's it's uh, it's why we have been you know sort of at pains in the in the Emancipation Network to explore ideas of coordination um, socially and politically, economically, um, as opposed to just saying send it and and see what happens because we have like we have the counter examples to show this doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't hope hope is not a strategy <laughs> you know it just fucking isn't um you'd hope it would be uh hope it would be um kind of you know obvious by now um what's the next bit uh teleology with and without the subject um what was all this about I think this is kind of where he gets into the um, uh, the sort of misappropriation of the um, scientific discourse on self-organization. The and a lot of it is about the kind of ways that self-organization really doesn't have a moral or political content to it because it's it's kind of just how the universe works anyway, and so that means that everyone from the fucking Hayek neoliberals all the way through to anarchists, fucking anyone. You know, they can all just project their desires onto the process of, like, the, the sort of natural processes of self-organization, even though, you know, it should give you a hint that because everyone can lay claim to it, it doesn't really have any moral or particular political content. It's just, it's just a fact of, of nature, right? Well, and, and there's, there's, there's no strong objection that can be made to the idea that capitalism is a self-organizing system, right? Like it, you know, Hayek would say that's a good thing. But, um, you know, if you are arguing in favor of self-organization as a sort of normative principle, the thing that we're supposed to be arguing against is also self-organizing. It's just organizing in a way that is killing everything on Earth. Yeah. Um, so, so advocating for self-organization is just kind of meaningless on its own, right? Like it's what well, well, all that really does is it projects a theory of justice and a sort of uh, moral framework onto nature and tries to use that to bolster your argument for the moral framework. You know, it's yeah, it's a it's a weird move that doesn't really work um, and doesn't doesn't leave doesn't bring us anywhere on this question of organization. Right. Like it, it, it doesn't. And, and it, uh, again, we're we're talking here in a sort of loose sense of self-organization, because as we established at the start of the chapter, self-organization doesn't actually exist. Right. Yeah, like exactly. it's, it's, there, there, there's that sort of um, internal heterogeneity that can um, organize itself internally at the same time that it disorganizes its environment. And that's what you would refer to as a self-organizing system, right? You know, what we would want to do with uh, uh, communism is to establish a system of that kind that is selective about the ways in which it disorganizes its environment and organizes itself, as opposed to you know, like selective in a sense that is a, that that accounts for flourishing of life, um, as opposed to uh, the capitalist one, which is selective but is selective towards death um, of 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 all life uh, in existence, um, and and you know that means things like, for example, okay, if we need to rely on outside energy to organize ourselves, maybe we should rely on the sun. 
or, you know, the geothermal sources, things that are venting energy anyway uh, into our environment. Uh, these massive uh, batteries of energy that uh, we can just take advantage of without disorganizing our planetary system um, in a uh, really destructive way. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's being deliberate about those things, um, taking into uh, mind sort of these these ethical imper uh, imperatives of flourishing of life that you see in like Aristotle and beer and so on, um, as opposed to just using a quote unquote self organizing system that Hayek would would valorize that would just kill everything in existence. But it must be right because it's, you know, ordained by nature. Right. Uh, that kind of silly argument that that you get from the Austrians. Yeah, and I mean, like it, it it's it also when you when you recognize that in the Austrians, you can also recognize the fallaciousness of it in 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 the left, right? Like when it's just like self self organization will just take care of it, right? Like is is a really fucking poor argument because everything, including all the bad shit, is self organizing in that sort of sense. Um, you know. Yeah, it's 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 one thing to think systematically and think cybernetically and understand the functioning of systems. Um, and it's, and, and to, to sort of leverage that understanding to achieve the ethical and aesthetic priorities that we have as people. And, and on the other hand, you have sort of acknowledging that, that systems exist and, Therefore, saying that that sort of systems knowledge, uh, 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 that instrumental knowledge is somehow like an, an absolute providential guarantee, right? Just because systems, you can look at you can look at systems and you can modify them in accordance with an understanding of cybernetics and get something more towards what you want, right? But that doesn't mean that like all systems are just sort of naturally tending towards that end. That that isn't what that isn't what systems theory isn't what cybernetics says. It's like it's like if you if you just I don't know, like run a generative sequencer on your computer and hook it up to some instruments. Is it going to automatically produce music or will you need to tweak it? Obviously, you're going to need to tweak it unless, you know, you get that sort of singular one in a bajillion <laughs> event. And even then it's not significant to anything beyond its own context. Right. So it, it's, it's like, you really have to say that like this sort of potential for improvement is not the same thing as an existing necessity of improvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like, you got to kind of ask, like, why the insistence on this stuff? And, like, um, what the author kind of puts forward here is that, like, it, it really is a, it's a way of disavowing agency, both collective and individual, right? It's part of that trauma response. Because, ultimately, it's a fallback to saying, fuck it, I'm taking my hands off the wheel, the revolution will sort itself out. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, definitely. And, uh, it's also, I think, um, he kind of mentions how it, it, it's, it's kind of also a response to sort of the general, uh, disillusionment, d disillusionment with the idea of progress. So even, uh, Lib's appeal to this idea, right? Like with, 
with sort of um, neoliberal optimization as an idea of sort of like working in accordance with with like the flow of nature, right? That like the, the world the world will just sort of spontaneously optimize itself for the market. Uh, and that being a kind of like fantasy that animated the um, the actual like market engineering they were doing. Right. Like, you know, God only helps those who helps themselves. Right. Like very. It reminds me of um, it very much reminded me of um, all watched over by machines of loving grace, like that kind of thing. Right. Like where Curtis got on the same track there with like it was this like fantastical notion that like if you just kind of rig up self-organization it would just automatically steer itself towards utopia and it's like no it just steers itself in fucking circles it goes off and does whatever whatever crazy shit it, it's gonna do like it, it does it doesn't have a theory of justice built into it like yeah it's uh the the, the three groups that uh Nunes sort of identifies are like the neolibs the um uh what he calls the, I think the new communitarians who become, who become the Silicon Valley types. Uh, that That's what we covered in uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And then you have um, the sort of uh, like cybernetically oriented anarchists um, who, who take this uh, uh, self-organization equals good um, line. Um, yeah. Um. And then I guess the last section then is, is politics with the subject in, where we're going back to the subject, uh, revenge of the subject. Um, it's, it's back to we, right? And like um, design and trying to, trying to put agency back on the table here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, pretty much every chapter finishes in basically the same way. Like, again, arguing for this organization in this mixed mode um like being being sensible about things being practical about like real problems informing your thoughts rather than starting from prescriptions that you got from over a hundred years ago and yeah yeah it says um uh if one neglects concepts like nucleation and critical size and just assumes that whatever systems one wishes to influence are permanently close to a critical threshold it is possible to build a theory of change in which magnitude, intensity, durability, and contingency of action are practically irrelevant. And then, as you you mentioned earlier, like, you know, the, the flap of the butterfly's wings in Brazil can set off a tornado in Texas. So why why bother doing anything larger than a butterfly's wings uh, uh, flapping? Um, and, and uh you know, this is how self-organization was instrumentalized by a legitimate fear of things we need, uh, initiative, assembling and channeling potentia and what they might entail. Vanguards, representation, institutions protest us into an argument as to why we do not need those things at all. Mm -hmm. But it turns out we do. <laughs> we do need to actually do this stuff, you know? Um, yeah. And then there's there's just sort of a little coda at the end there about leninism which we probably don't need to talk about um because it's it's real it's really not that important it's just sort of like look some of my ideas map on to lenin's ideas isn't that great yeah yeah the the the, the covert leninism throughout the book is um is interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's it's like uh i don't know if nunes is a leninist or is just friendly with leninists but um there's there's a sort of like um almost like a a, a, a kind of um fawning fawning behavior towards like the the idea of daddy lenin um and 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 mummy rosa 
um, uh, that is like, you know, I mean, it's interesting to engage with this history, but like the, 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 the sort of fawning is, is not really necessary. Um, I, I, I don't think, um, yeah, definitely. Right. Like, um, and what, what was it in the introduction where he, he kind of said almost at the end of the introduction that the ideas in the book had kind of gotten their start a long time ago. And back then he was calling it, what the fuck? Oh yeah. It was like, why we need a new Leninism or ne- something like networked, that? Networked Leninism. Network Leninism. Yeah. 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 But, and, and, uh, you know, one wonders if, precisely because this is a very horizontal moment, he's, um, you know, bending the stick, well, hey, you know, uh, a little bit. Uh, but, but there's, there's a whiff of, like, uh, a little bit too much of the Leninism in there, I think. Well, it's, it's just sort of like trying to engage with, the history of Leninism without really going all the way, you know, uh, really being like thoroughgoing and honest about the engagement. Um, and, and sort of trying to like cherry pick the parts that, um, sort of support his thesis in order to maybe appeal to Leninists or just to, or just because like, you know, he, honestly believes that 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 that's a valuable tradition to draw on um while also offering some criticism so it's not a it's not a like you know this is the immortal science blah 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 kind of argument at all in fact it's quite critical it's just that um there does seem to be a bit of like sort of unexamined fawning over the memory of like oh you know like lenin was the one that taught us that like you know we need political action and we can't just rely on these like you know ossified formulas from ac- ac- academia it's like well actually the like the, the 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 menshevik objections to lenin in that time offered no useful political prescriptions but they weren't wrong about what would happen if he did take power <laughs> so it's like you know whatever you're considering action you should sort of consider the 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 context um uh as opposed to just sending it which is the 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 thing that um that voluntarism we saw in laclau and move sort of suggests right is is it's like you know you don't you don't need to do that you can just uh you can actually have a second thought um and and you know granted the situation was really bad there at the time but that doesn't mean we have to hold it up as like this is the thing we all need to follow no, God, no. I mean, that, that that is the fatal fucking mistake of 20th century socialism is, like, taking that as the one fucking yardstick against which everything else has to be measured. Um, yeah. Um, I think there was one tiny thing we slightly missed that, like, at the... One of the conclusions of that chapter is that, like, organization and spontaneity are not opposites. They're moments of the same process. So that... In order for something to become organized, it has to there has to be something spontaneous underlying it that it, that can be organized. But then, for that spontaneous initiative to go anywhere or amount to anything, it needs to be more than just spontaneous Brownian motion. Yeah, exactly. Like the party is never going to trigger the rev. Like that just doesn't happen. Uh, if you look at historical examples, um, there's actually it's the, the you know as Trotsky said right. It's like the party follows behind 
what is happening in the in the revolutionary action in the in the in the streets, right? It's it's um often catching up. Um and uh so that moment of quote unquote spontaneity, which is actually a effect of more localized and heterogeneous forms of organization in society abroad that, that, you know, are, are, are not exactly the party form, um, is something that can push a party into action that is already organized. Um, uh, and so it's, you know, um, these things, it's sort of like the idea of an impetus, right? The, the spont the quote unquote spontaneity, although it, it only appears that way in a sense, um, is uh, something that can give the impetus for organization to, like, you know, be utilized and push its effects hard enough that they can overcome those dampeners and negative feedback mechanisms, right? Yeah, because without, without that, it's just going to be the flapping of a butterfly's wings and that's, that doesn't necessarily cause the storm <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um it's like you know it's why we point to like uh global climate change as a more likely cause of these like you know um catastrophic weather events around the world that we're having all the time as opposed to <laughs> butterflies <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. it's a much more uh it's it, it's it's a phenomenon that operates in a much larger scale of organization than butterflies in their uh their their local uh air currents. Yeah, and like I guess to close it out, like um looking back on the kind of the, the, the trauma of the left or whatever, you can definitely understand how and why people came to that point where they would have preferred to believe that these tiny actions would revolutionize the world because the alternatives just seem too painful. But, you know, I, I understand it, but I also think it, it's wrong. You know, <laughs> it's like, hey, one can comprehend how you get there, but it's, it's still incorrect. And we have to face up to that. listening to General Intellect Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps. So like, rate, subscribe, and share us with your friends. If you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month, you can get access to our community discord and help to keep us alive. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as From Alpha to Omega, Swamp Side Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They are excellent shows and excellent folks. Once again, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this show, and we hope you'll join us again next time.